Welcome to Once and Future Authors, Changing Lives One Book at a Time. I'm Stephanie Larkin, an author, independent publisher, and book coach. And each week we will be discussing processes and strategies to get your book finished and published and meet authors and publishing experts to tap into their experiences and expertise. There is one book out there that can change your life, and that is the book you write. So welcome aboard. This podcast is produced by Red Penguin Books, an independent publishing company working with authors of all genres. Whether you have a manuscript all ready to go, a book still stuck in your head, or perhaps even hundreds of handwritten sheets of loose leaf shoved in a drawer, visit redpenguinbooks.com and unleash your inner author. Welcome to the show. I am so delighted tonight to be joined not only by author Larry Bloom, the author of Fierce Resistance, but Larry brought along his entire theater group so that we can dramatize <laughs> Fierce Resistance because this is quite the dramatic book. Our next reader is Lila. So what have we been doing to protect our farms and kibbutzim and other member, Daniel asked. We've been taking turns watching each other's lands, Shmuel explained, and warning each other when Arabs try to attack. This is where I belong, Itzhak thought the first time he went. He had new friends and a purpose. He went every week, usually after working the fields. He didn't come to any conclusions right away. He sat and listened to meetings every week. What he gathered by listening to the others in the meeting was that he and his fellow resistance members were using the threat of violence or actually carrying out violent acts to get what they wanted, political change. The term he heard Avi and the others use to describe this was terrorism. When he first heard it, Itzhak was taken aback. Is this what I joined for? To threaten or actually hurt people or property? After he sat and thought about it, in his heart and mind, Itzhak knew that he needed to be part of this resistance movement. The horn of a car behind him took him out of his daydreaming. After nearly 30 years of life in Palestine and his close personal involvement all those years with the Jewish resistance movement, Itzhak felt that he was always on shaky ground. From the pogroms in Europe in 1919, when he and his family first emigrated, through the Western Wall uprising, the horrors of the Holocaust, the ongoing animosity with the Arabs and the Brits, he always steeled himself for the unexpected event ready to happen at any moment. And of course, there were plenty of times when Itzhak wondered what he was doing mixed up in all of this. He brushed aside these thoughts for the moment anyway, and he turned off the car engine and went inside for dinner. As Yitzhak finished his dinner and sipped his tea, he sat deep in thought. His wife Miriam knew that sometimes when he was troubled and needed to solve work and work through issues, he couldn't talk to Mary about. He would sit at the kitchen table, rest his head on his arm and seem to fall asleep. Tonight was one of those nights. He knew that Palestine was a powder keg this time. Besides the Haganah, other militant groups had sprung up. The Lehi, Fighters for the Freedom of Israel, the Stern Gang and his organization, the Ergon Zvei Lumi, were seeing young, impressionable men and some women showing up at their meeting sites. <clears throat> Some who came were not sure why, but it was clear to Itzhak that most of these young people were coming because they wanted to belong, to have an identity, and to feel they were needed. Daily news over the radio painted a bleak picture of a constantly unsteady, uneasy place where bombings, shootings, and significant violence had become a regular part of life. Would things ever get easier, Yitzhak wondered to himself as he settled into bed. He leaned over, gave Miri a kiss, and tried to sleep. Benjamin couldn't let it go. 
He was so angry he could taste the bile in his throat. Images and words from the meeting earlier in the day were running around in his head as he walked down the street, crossed over one block and then another, until he was standing at the bus stop. As he stood waiting for the bus home, he thought, how dare he? When Yitzhak sat there in that meeting and accused Benjamin of looking to start a war against the Brits on his own, he was so mad. But with more time to think, to stew about it some more as he looked down the street for the damn bus, which never seemed to come quickly, he thought to himself, I know how I feel. This is our land. The Brits don't have any reason to be here. And he muttered it out loud to no one in particular. People waiting for the bus were staring back at him, but he didn't care. You know how the mind works? In an instant, Benjamin was remembering 1940. His family was living in a two-bedroom apartment in Warsaw then. Benjamin, age 14, his papa, Yechiel and his brother, Moshe, age 12, they slept in one bedroom. His mother, Sarah, and sister, Rebecca, age six, slept in the other bedroom. The bathroom used by everyone on the floor was in the hall. Benjamin had undergone undergone a growth spurt. He was tall, skinny, and had red hair and freckles. His oily skin and acne were a constant source of embarrassment to him. Benjamin tried his best not to pick at the pimples, but they would constantly seem to itch. His face had pock marks too. It certainly didn't help him to meet girls, he thought. Here in Warsaw, everybody was going about their daily lives but deep inside, there was an unspoken, ever-present fear of the Nazis and what they might do. No one seemed to know what might happen next. Over breakfast one morning, Mama told her children that there was talk of forcing them to pack and move to a place where Jews would have to live in a crammed space. The thought was terrifying. Then a couple of weeks later, the notice came. Their papa would be going to a work camp in a place called Treblinka, 50 miles outside Warsaw. Papa was a watchmaker by trade. No work at the shop had changed that. When he was a young man, Yechiel loved to work on the farm. He shared stories with the family about helping his papa work the farm in Lutz. Fabulous. Thank you so much. Thank you. We're going to skip ahead a little bit in the story. And Naomi is going to read. Take it away, Naomi. Thank you. It was so cold during the night that Benjamin's teeth were chattering. The thin blanket on the cot barely covered him. In his mind's eye, he relived the events of a month ago all over again. Getting a lift to Roshpina, firing the gun, being forced to the ground, handcuffed, questioned. It seemed like a long time had passed before two soldiers brought him to the cell. He figured he was in the Accra prison, even though no one had come to talk to him since then. The only view was of the thick black cell door. Sleep had been almost impossible. He could hear the others, loud talking, screams, mixed in with some curses in Hebrew and curses in Arabic. In the middle of the night, the prisoner in a cell nearby tried to talk with him. At least that's who he thought it was. But he was afraid to say anything. It could be a trap, he figured. The sun came up. That much he was able to tell from a glint of it reflecting on a window that must be down the hall. He looked around the cell. There was dirt and grease on every surface. Benjamin stared at the sink with its one working faucet that spewed cold water, at the toilet where there was no seat to lift up, just an opening where the waste went down. Like everything else in the cell, it hadn't been cleaned in a long time. The place reeked from the smell of disinfectant mixed with the odors of urine and body odor. After 24 hours, he actually got used to it. It was quiet in the morning, but that soon changed. He was sitting on the cot, looking at the scratches on the wall and mentally adding them up when he noticed a British soldier, 
a private, he figured. The private was walking slowly down the row of cells, stopping at each one to wordlessly stare. He had a clipboard and he looked at it and at each prisoner and marked something down. As he walked, he frequently reached for the grip of the gun, not for any reason as far as anyone could tell. Benjamin tried to keep from looking at him directly, figuring it was better not to call attention to himself. Soon, however, the private was standing at his cell door. Prisoner, he shouted, turn and face me. Benjamin did as he was told. Private Herman Buxton was standing there glaring. What's your name, he shouted. Yosef, he replied, Benjamin Yosef. Private Buxton muttered something under his breath, marked something on his clipboard and moved on. A little later, two guards rolled a cart down the row of cells with what he assumed was a meal. Gruel, not hot, but more like room temperature, was ladled out into a bowl and a roll of hard, crusty bread was placed on top of the gruel. A bent spoon was the only utensil provided and it was all shoved into an opening at the bottom of the cell by the guard. Benjamin ate ravenously. Thank you. Thank you so much. Our next reader is Joseph Swigert, who's going to skip us a little bit ahead in the story. Joe? Okay. It was early afternoon in the Hargrove home. Sybil's mother, Millicent, was ironing her husband's shirts. Ted, her husband, was busy at the home office. Classes at the university were done for the day, which left plenty of time for Sybil to worry. What to say to mom and dad? How to tell them that she met the boy, the man of her dreams. Sybil had wrestled with her feelings these last two weeks since she and Moshe had their first true intimate moment in the back of the bookstore. Granted, it hadn't been all she hoped it would be, but their lovemaking in her bedroom confirmed her feeling that Moshe was the man she wanted in her life always. Ever since their last date, she had not heard from Moshe and started to worry that Maybe he really didn't love her. Maybe he was just using her, or maybe he thought she was too easy. Then a letter came addressed to her without a return address. Sybil waited until she was alone to read it. She knew it had to be from Moshe. My dear sweet Sib, he wrote, how beautiful our last date was. I'm sorry that we haven't been together since then. I've been so busy looking after my mother she has been so downhearted since Benji's arrest that all she does is sit and cry. Please know that I love you with all my heart and want to see you soon and tell you in person all my love, your emotion. As she read the note, tears came to her eyes and she could feel her heart beating faster. She dreamed about him, his face, his hands, his back, the freckles on his arms. She knew she was a silly nit, but she couldn't help it. She loved him. It seemed like the best time to bring the matter up was when mom would be preparing breakfast and serving it to dad. He was always in a rush to get to the office, so bright and early the next morning, Sybil came into the dining room. Her mom had already served her dad his breakfast, and true to form, he already had his nose buried in the paper while he ate his toast and jam and drank his tea. Morning, Mom. Morning, Dad, Sybil said as she sat down at the table across from her dad. You're up early today, Sib. You're up early today, Sib, her mom noted. Do you want some toast with jam like Dad's having? She asked. Yes, Mom, that would be great, uh, Sybil responded. As Millie toasted the bread, boiled the water in the kettle for the tea, and spread the jam for the toast, she said, a letter came for you yesterday without any return address. Sybil answered quickly, oh, yes, Mom, it was for me from a friend in school. Sybil's dad, Ted, Ted, peered over his paper. A friend you see every day at school writes you notes, he asked? Must be a boy. 
Yes, Dad, Sybil said, but he's a man. Ted muttered to himself as he silently chewed his toast. Sybil sat down at the table across from her dad and started to eat nervously. She had a textbook from school that she buried her head in, waiting for questions from her father. She glanced over at her father who picked up the paper, found out where he left off and resumed his reading. As he read, he continued eating all the time, muttering to himself. Billy joined them at the table and said, and she stirred her tea. At, she asked Sybil, how did you meet him? Sybil quickly volunteered that he goes to the same school that I do. He came into the bookstore and we kind of hit it off, she answered. Sounds good. What's his name? Sounds good. What's his name? Ted asked. Uh, Sybil buried her head into the book and said, Dad, can I finish reading this chapter? It's for school. Uh, Ted replied, sure, dear. And then he stopped eating, lowered his paper and said, is there a reason why you're not telling me his name? Sybil averted his stare and more of a glare, really. He could be so intense sometimes. She thought and said, no, uh, not really, Dad. It's just that I have to get this reading done for school. Ted was about to say something more when Millie intervened. Ted, don't pick on her. I'm sure everything is fine. He's a university student. And the important thing is that Sybil loves him. Ted looked a little forlorn as he folded his newspaper in half, got it from the table, went over to the coat closet, and got his briefcase, placed the paper in it, and closed the latch. He put on his coat and hat and took one last look in the mirror inside the closet, and he started to go to the door when he turned to Sybil and said, Well, young lady, you're off the hook for now, but I want to hear more about your young man when I come home this evening. Both Sybil and Millie went over to Ted and gave him a kiss. Fabulous. Thank you. Elizabeth, thank you. From there. Millie said, Have a good day, dear. And they watched Ted go. Then Millie turned to Sybil and said, All right, Sib, tell me about him. Sybil gave her mother a look and was so close to tears. The words just came spilling out. Mommy, I need your help. I met a nice boy. I fell in love. It happened so quickly and I love him so much, she said. Millie held Sybil and could feel her whole body shake with emotion. Oh, honey, it's all right, Millie said. Now, what aren't you telling me? There was a definite pause. Millie waited for Sybil to reply. Are you in some kind of trouble? Sybil answered, no, mom. Sybil knew it was coming. That look of disapproval and concern at the same time that her mom would give her once in a while. What could she do? Especially when Millie got up from her chair and sat across from Sybil and in a quiet voice said, then what is it? I know you well enough to know when something's bothering you. And whether you're going to tell me now or when you're ready, I'm ready to hear it. Millie knew she had put it out there. She knew her Sib. She felt so close to her daughter that if there were any secrets that Sybil was holding back, she would share them pretty quickly. And with her next breath, Sybil blurted it right out. All right, all right, I'll tell you. Go on, Millie said. Sybil responded. His name is Moshe. He's a Jewish boy, he's in university, but he's not in any of the same classes that I have. He came into the bookstore, we talked for hours. He seemed so sweet, so kind. Rather nervously, Millie added, go on. Well, you and dad always said that, you know, when, when the right guy comes along, and I have, Sybil said. Your dad will be upset. I know, Mom. Well, do you really love him? Or is this just one of your infatuations? Oh, I really, really love him, Sybil said. We've talked forever, it seems, about our hopes, our dreams. Millie knew how overprotective Ted was when it came to his daughter. Hearing about a boy, especially one who wasn't from the same religion. Millie got up from the table rather quickly. Sybil noticed. She went straight to the kitchen, picked up a sponge, and started scrubbing the kitchen sink. And as she scrubbed, Millie said, 
your dad is going to be very angry when he finds out. He was afraid that with, a, with us living here, you wouldn't meet boys more suited to... Millie stopped mid-sentence. She knew what she wanted to say, but thought better of it. What, mom? Say it, Sybil said. I wouldn't meet nice British boys, Catholics or Angelicans. Well, you can say it, mom, she added. You're backing me into a corner, Millie said. And then Sybil, usually quiet and reserved, said what was on both of their minds. Well, say it, mom. I've fallen in love with a Jew, Millie said. You know you're putting your mom and dad in a difficult position, Sybil said. Look, I know it's going to sound terrible, but I can't worry about it. I've got to do what I feel. Well, I hope you understand, Mom. I'm trying to, Sib. I really am. Sybil got up out of her chair and went into the kitchen and poured some more tea from the kettle. Millie sat very still, quietly taking in all of this argument. When Sybil came back into the room, it was clear that Millie was crying. Millie said, you have upset me very much, Sybil. I know, Mom. Sybil said. She stood up and walked over to the chair where Millie was sitting. She would try to reach out to her hand to stroke her mother's arm, but surprisingly, Millie pulled it away and said, you know, it's your dad you're gonna have to deal with. Millie stood up and started to walk towards the kitchen. She was always such a stickler for a clean home, but now with all this upset, she hadn't even thought about cleaning the dining room table and the dirty china at every place setting. As Millie walked towards the kitchen, Sybil followed her. She was almost directly behind her mother when she asked, will you back me up, mommy? Millie quickly turned around so that she was looking directly at her daughter as she said, it's hard, it's really hard. You're asking me to go against your father, Sybil asked. Well, will you? I'm going to have to wait and see, Sib, Millie said. That's all I can say. So we'll have to let it go with that and wait till your dad gets home later, Millie added. As she left and went into the bathroom. The tension of the afternoon left Millie weeping. In her bedroom, Sybil was weeping on her pillow. It would be a long day until Ted would be coming home. Thank you. Thank you. Jean Ann, skip us a little bit ahead in the story and take it away. Okay, the last five persons who read, none of my pages matched, but I'm going to read okay, the well, That's okay. You can be right there on page 85. Okay. After all of the years of hiding his true feelings, of being ashamed of himself and of the clothes on his back, to look around at all the people smiling and cheering and calling his name, David bent over, crying deeply. Sybil was replaying the sight of those clapping people in her mind when Shlomo yelled, the break is over, recruits. Two hours in the afternoon were spent on map reading, learning what all the symbols of the map meant and how to plan a route. A lot of the time was also spent during the day or lately during evening hours, holding planning sessions to talk about the past discussing about raids and missions worked and why. Whenever he could, especially late it seemed, Itzhak would take time out of his law office to lead those sessions with some of the longtime members of his team. Men like Shlomo, Herschel, Ari had participated in past actions and proved their value to the resistance with their courage and willingness to put themselves in dangerous situations, all in the name of the resistance. What seemed most interesting as far as Sybil was concerned was learning about the history of Palestine and knowing more about the Jewish people. Moshe especially enjoyed sitting side by side with Sybil. David and Danny were these strategy sessions were going. Putting aside the fact that Sib was his girlfriend, Moshe felt good about that what he was doing and felt a real connection to these people. Books from Itzhak's personal library, though dog-eared and yellowing, were found at almost every table or desk in the warehouse. Sybil noted that there were books on a variety of subjects, Torah, 
European history, philosophy, as well as a copy of the Odyssey, and even some old National Geographics. Even though the books and magazines were old and not in the best condition, it didn't matter. Everyone who came to the meeting seemed so hungry for knowledge to learn all they could. David and Daniel and Moshe seemed to adjust to the Spartan food and the military routine enforced during the indoctrination. In addition to learning to shoot a gun, Shlomo and some of the others had taught them how to drop and roll in case of enemy fire, how to fight in hand-to-hand -hand combat situation, along with how to respond if captured. Sybil, on the other hand, was finding it very hard to keep up with the men. She seemed breathless most of the time and really out of shape. She always hated physical education class and ducked out as often as she could, so she wasn't terribly surprised that she had a little energy by the time the evening came. It was six o'clock and the end of the another day at the warehouse. Most of the resistance fighters who had come earlier in the day either worked or were in school part-time and then headed home for dinner. Just a few had been staying overnight, Sybil, Moshe, Danny, and David. Usually dinner was the main meal of the day. Fortunately, Shlomo's wife, Dinah, had called, uh, had cooked an extra piece of pot roast on Sunday night and had sent it down to switch Shlomo on his next trip to the warehouse on Tuesday evening. Sybil made a simple gravy with the drippings from the pan, added some flour and some butter, and everyone ate heartily. As he did most evenings after dinner, Danny brought out his guitar and played some tunes. No one was paying much attention though. Moshe turned on the console radio in the front room and he and Sybil listened to Kol Yisroel. He thought it was good for Sybil to listen and learn the Hebrew from the news reporters as they read the stories of the day. Each of them took a turn on the overnight shift guarding the front door. At nearly six weeks of indoctrination, Shlomo announced that the training was done. Later that evening, when they were pretty sure that the others were asleep, Moshe and Sybil snuggled together in a single bed in one of the two back rooms and made love. Afterwards, they talked openly and honestly. I'm afraid, Moshe, Sybil said. Of what, Moshe asked. Of course, he really didn't need to ask. He already knew what had been troubling Sybil ever since their indoctrination started. I'm afraid of hurting someone, shooting them or killing them, Sybil answered. She went on, I'm no good at this. Shooting the gun scares me. And I didn't know what I was getting myself into with all this resistance business, she added. Sybil began to cry. I miss my home. I miss my mom and my dad, she added weeping. Moshe tried to comfort her, but Sybil was really upset. She cried and cried until she eventually fell asleep in Moshe's arms. Danny and David had heard Sybil crying, heard Moshe trying to comfort her and figured that they would leave here and Moshe alone for the rest of the night. The warm, bright sun shining through the window woke Sybil up in the next morning. She was alone in the front room. The warehouse seemed especially quiet now the training was over. Sybil got up, washed and dressed. Where is everyone, she wondered, as she walked from room to room and didn't see a soul. She figured they must have gone out to shop for food. Sybil decided it was a good time to curl up on the couch in front of the room and with a good book and take advantage of the alone time. But as she sat staring at the magazine that she had in her hand, her mind raced and pictured her mom standing in the kitchen and dad at the kitchen table reading the paper. All of this reminded Sybil about how blue and lonely she felt. Like every day, the rest of the week, there was little for the recruits to do except read or listen to the radio. They also played cards to pass the time. The general meetings that usually took place in the early evening, most days of the week, seemed to be shorter, and there were only two that were convened. Something big was brewing, Danny was convinced, and he said so to David, who shrugged his shoulders in response. Unspoken but, but anxiously, they were waiting for something to happen. It was two days later, 1.30 in the morning, Moshe looked up at David, standing at the foot of the bed, shaking him awake. David was dressed entirely in black gear, black shirt, black pants, black shoes, black socks, and his face and hands were blackened as well. We move tonight, he said to Moshe. Wow, thank you so much. Uh, John Brandis, you're up next. Okay. Uh, 
It was a typical Monday morning in early March, 1946, rainy and chilly. The staff members at British High Command offices had clocked in nearly an hour and a half ago. Everyone knew Monday mornings meant Colonel Kenneth O'Dowell was meeting with his staff in the fourth office, fourth floor office and conference room. What hadn't been typical, but were becoming more frequent were the anti-British attacks by members of the resistance. Over the past year and a half, the resistance had been actively carrying out missions that were aimed to sabotage or destroy British operations. Nothing was safe in their reign of terror. From raids on British radar installations, to sabotage of British sea vessels, and the bombing of Palestine's railroad network. Most recently, Operation Markalet, or as they were calling it, the Night of the Bridges, was carried out by the Haganah. The latest reports showed the destruction of eight bridges that connected Palestine to its neighbors, Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, and Egypt. We lost a lot of prestige in that raid, O'Dowell told his officers. While the damage reports are still coming in, he said, the toll in the area of 200,000 pounds sterling. Outwardly, with his stiff upper lip attitude, he didn't show more than a business-like attitude toward these incursions and terror attacks. But inwardly, Kenneth O'Dowell's gut told him that the pace and severity of these attacks would only get worse. It was an hour since the meeting began. O'Dowell noted to himself, he wrapped up the meeting, thanked everyone and returned to his office. As he sat at his desk, Ken could hear classical music softly playing on the radio in the outer office, occasionally interrupted by the radio announcer with the news. His aide, Major David Lester, could be heard typing on his Remington typewriter. The phone rang and Major Lester quickly answered it. A moment later, he stuck his head in the office and said, Ken, a lawyer named Itzhak Gamel is here to see you. Gamel? Itzhak Gamel? What does he want? O'Dowell asked. He's the counsel for Benjamin Yosef. He wants to talk, Lester replied. O'Dowell said about his terrorists, no doubt. He thought about it for a moment and then added, all right, send him in. A moment later, Itzhak Gamel was ushered into O'Dowell's office. Itzhak Gamel, Major Lester said in a way of introduction to O'Dowell. Have a seat, Mr. Gamel, O'Dowell said. Now, what can I do for you? My aide didn't tell me the purpose of your visit today. Very nice. Thank you so much. John Canning, you're up. John? Did we lose Canning? John, nope, I see him here. John Canning, just unmute and you're on. Unmute. John? Unmute. Unmute your microphone. All right, okay. All right, can you hear me? Yes. yes. Okay, great. Next to the last one. He has two pages. <laughs> okay. Justice Willis excused the witness and said, Prosecution may call its next witness. In a loud voice, Lloyd said, The prosecution calls Benjamin Yosef to the stand. A much thinner and older looking Benjamin Yosef walked to the stand. After he was sworn in by the court clerk, Benjamin sat in the witness box, awaiting a tough questioning by Chief Prosecutor Lloyd. He didn't have to wait long. Now, Mr. Yosef, will you tell the court exactly where you were and what you were doing on the day in question, Monday, 7 January 1946, at approximately 11.45 in the morning, Lloyd asked. Yes, sir, Benjamin replied. I was walking along the Ramat Gan Highway. I was carrying my pistol, he added. Lloyd asked, your pistol? Yes, sir. Where did you get it? It was my papa's. I've had it many years. Do you have the papers at home to prove it's yours? Probably, Benjamin replied. Lloyd asked, 
were you ever questioned about the pistol? Antioch Gabel jumped to his feet, saying, Objection! On what grounds? Justice Willis asked. Counsel for the Crown has failed to establish a foundation for questioning the defendant about the pistol ownership, Yitzhak Gabel replied. It was clear that counsel for both sides needed a ruling. So Justice Willis asked both sides to meet in his chambers to present oral arguments. The trial was recessed until 9 a.m. the next day. The day had been long and arduous for Itzak, but in retrospect, he felt that his case for David and Benjamin had gone about as well as he could have predicted. Arthur Lloyd was pleased at how well he had managed to present a clear-cut case for the crowd. And the chance to see her Benjamin meant so much to Sarah. Seated next to her in the courtroom were Moish and Rebecca and Sybil and Billy Hargrove. In the early evening after the first day of the trial, sitting at his cluttered desk in his Ben Yehuda Street law office, Itzak had a chance to think about the day's events in greater detail. The prosecution's opening statements were as crisp and succinct as he knew they would be. Surprisingly, the question of the pits of the pistol of the pistol. Surprisingly, the question of the pistol of the pistol pistol. The question of the pistol. Correction. Surprisingly, the question of the pistol, its ownership and registration, and the uncertainty as to its use by Benjamin, whether fired with malice or not, left Yitzhak with some confidence that there was a possibility, granted it was a slim one, but a possibility nevertheless for a short prison term or perhaps even an acquittal for Benjamin. Benjamin Yosef hated the courtroom and the inevitable confrontations that lie ahead. He viewed himself as more of a take charge kind of person. Having to explain himself, to answer the why wasn't in his nature, he thought. It wasn't until lunch on the second day of the trial, after lunch, when Justice Willis said, Mr. Gamel, the defense may begin direct. Thank you, Your Honor, Yitzhak said. The defense calls Benjamin Yosef, he added. After he was sworn in, Benjamin sat in the witness box, nervously looking around. Yitzhak smiled at him ever so briefly and then said, Now, Mr. Yosef, Please tell us, in your own words, the events that occurred at 11.45 a.m. on Monday, 7 January 1946. Benjamin said, sure. I was walking along the main road to Ramat Gad. I had my pistol with me. I saw a truck pass by me. I noticed it was a British truck. I fired one bullet in the air. All right. Thank you. Uh, waiting with bated breath to hear what happens next. Ed, would you please read for us? I know you're going to skip a little bit ahead in our story. Yes, sir, Benjamin Yosef replied. The 30 kilometers per hour. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I think I just the wrong Ed. The other Ed. No, A is reading. Ed, no, it's, it's the other Ed. It's the it's Ed. This is Ed Adaminatus who should be reading. Oh, okay, where is Ed? He's right here. He's yeah. muted. Page one fifty-two. Yeah, Ed Adaminatus. Yes, page one fifty-two for Ed. I have him muted. Okay, it's on mute. Ed. Yeah, where do you want me to read? No, 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 not, not Cushman. Ed Adamatus. Ed Adamatus. Go ahead, start reading. Looking here. He has to unmute himself. Yes, you have to unmute. Unmute yourself. Ed, Ed we can't hear you. What page is that on now? Page 152, but Ed, you have to unmute. I went into. Page 150. Where where are we now? There. Now he's got it. Okay. We should be on page 152. 
Okay. Again? Yes. Now, Mr. Yosef, I would like to go over a few points about your recollection of the events of Monday, 7th of January, 1946. Yes, sir, Benjamin Yosef replied. Does 30 kilometers per hour seem fast to you? Lloyd asked. No, not really, Yosef answered. And yet you couldn't read the lettering on the truck as it drove past you? Lloyd asked. You couldn't tell that it was an army truck? Well, yes, Benjamin Yosef replied. I couldn't. Captain Lloyd took a step towards the witness box and said, tell me, Mr. Yosef, could you tell that the men were riding in the back of the truck? Yosef said, I wasn't paying attention. You see, when the truck passed, I quickly lifted my pistol and fired a shot off. Lloyd leaned his body in and asked, you knew that the truck was British? Joseph said, yes, you fired a bullet off for no apparent reason. Is that what you're saying? No, not even waiting for Yosef to reply, he continued by asking, now tell me, why would you or any man for that matter be to a town where they don't live, walk along a busy road during the morning rush, take a pistol and fire a bullet into the air, not at a target? I don't know, sir, Yosef replied. Let me ask you this, Mr. Yosef. If a man has a cause he believes in and he wants to make a statement, doesn't it seem logical for you that he would fire a shot in the air? Captain Lloyd asked. I object, Your Honor, Ishtar Gamel quickly replied. Willis asked, on what grounds, Mr. Gamel? Gamel replied. Counsel is conjecturing and badgering the witness. Justice Willis said, sustain, stick to the facts presented, Captain Lloyd. There was a pause and a hush in the courtroom while Captain Lloyd again consulted his handwritten notes at the prosecution table. After what seemed like an eternity to Benjamin, but really just a few minutes or so, Captain Lloyd turned, faced Benjamin, and asked, tell me, Mr. Yosef, how often have you taken a car ride with Mr. Ellie Stern? Just that one time, Benjamin replied. And why ask Mr. Stern to drive you? Captain Lloyd asked, were you just looking for a way to spend the day along the highway with a friend? Or did you have something more specific in mind? He didn't wait for an answer and then asked, did you ask Mr. Stern to stay or did you go off leaving by yourself? Benjamin stared and said, I asked him to leave me and go. Istak thought about objecting, but it was clear that Lloyd had effectively made the his point that this was not a pleasure ride with a friend, but a definite journey with a specific plan in mind. Captain Lloyd rose and said, Your Honor, I have no further questions for this witness. Justice Willis asked, any redirect Mr. Gamel? No, Your Honor, Ishtar Gamel replied. The the defendant may rejoin counsel at the defense table. Justice Willis said, Benjamin felt a great sense of relief as he crossed over to the defense table. That's it. Fantastic. Thank you. My goodness. I loved all of our readers. And one thing I loved, we were jumping around a bit in the story which was fabulous because we got a little bit of the, um, 
the, the, the meetings that were taking place. We got a little bit of the romance going on, some of the family drama, courtroom scenes. Uh, in our minds, all of our future readers out there are kind of trying to put the pieces together and saying, but what happened here? They left me hanging. Thank you. That was the point, was to keep everybody hanging. So for all of my readers, you were awesome. Every one of you were awesome. You got right into your characters and my goodness, I wanna read the parts in between. Well, I did read the parts in between. I want everybody else to read all the parts in between. Thank you so much for reading. Uh, Larry, where are you? Uh, right here. How do you right like here. hearing your, your book instead Excellent. of- Excellent, wonderful. Aren't they all wonderful? They are wonderful. Now, Ed Cushman. Oh, terrific. We're going to have one more to finalize. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a finalized. The final, the final senior. 191, 191, 192. Fantastic. Ed, you're on. We need, we need you to bring it home. 191, 192. Thank you. Well, anyway, I enjoyed listening to the reading better than I was reading the book. <laughs> I, thought, I thought it brought life to the book, Larry. I, Thank I you. Fabulous hearing the book like this. Ed, Thank why don't you bring us home with the uh, the finale here? One ninety one to one ninety two. You want me to continue reading? Yeah, pages one ninety one to one ninety two. Ninety-one, ninety-two. We're really ninety-one to one ninety-two. <laughs> exactly at four p.m., David Ben Gurion stood up, stepped up to the podium beneath the large portrait of Theodore Herzl. I want to say one. I want to go up. Here's the last one. Do I quit? Yes. Yeah. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Pounders gavel to call the proceedings to order. And he said, we hereby declare that as of from the termination of the mandate at midnight, this night of the 14th and 15th of May, 1948, and until the setting up of the duly elected bodies of the state in accordance with the constitution, to be drawn up by a constitution assembly not later than the first day of October, 1948, the present National Council shall act as the provisional administration and shall constitute the provisional government of the state of Israel. The state of Israel will be open to the immigration of Jews from all countries of their dispersion, will promote the development of the country for the benefit of all its inhabitants will be based on the precepts of liberty, justice, and peace taught by the Hebrew prophets, will uphold the full social and political equality of all its citizens without distinction of race, creed, or sex, will guarantee full freedom of conscience, worship, education, and culture will safeguard the sanctity and inviability of the shrines and holy places of all religions and will dedicate itself to the principles of the charter of the United Nations. The state of Israel will be ready to cooperate with the organs and representatives of the United Nations in the implementation of the resolution of the assembly of November 29, 1947, and will take steps to bring about the economic union over the whole of Palestine. We appeal to United Nations to assist the Jewish people in the building of its state and to admit Israel into the family of nations. Continuing, he said, in the midst of wanton aggression, we yet call upon the Arab inhabitants of the state of Israel to return to the ways of peace and play their part in the development of the state with full and equal citizenship and due representation in its bodies and institutions, provisional or permanent. 
We offer peace and unity to all the neighboring states and their peoples and invite them to cooperate with the independent Jewish nation for the common good of all. Our call goes out to the Jewish people all over the world to rally to our side in the task of immigration and development and to stand by us in a great struggle for the fulfillment of the dream of generations, the redemption of Israel. With trust in Almighty God, we set our hand on this declaration at this session of the Provisional State Council in this city of Tel Aviv on this Sabbath Eve, the 5th of ER, 5708, the 14th day of May, 1948. Ben-Gurion sat down. Immediately, an impromptu singing of Hatikva and cheers echoed throughout the hall. Herschel thought, what a story this is. He sprinted to his cat, got in, and headed at breakneck speed to the office to submit it. The joy of this day was short-lived, for the next day, the Arab armies attacked Israel. Wow, bringing it home. Thank you so much. Wow, fantastic job to all of our readers. You were just amazing. Excellent, excellent. excellent. Thank excellent. you, Stephanie. Thank you, Thank everybody. Thank you, everybody. Enjoyable. And everybody. it's nice to hear it besides reading it. I, of course, have had, you know, probably read the book the most number of times of anybody in these, this meeting besides Larry. Yeah. And, uh, but hearing it instead of reading it was unbelievable. Special, special. It, it reminds me, it would remind me I'd listen to Gunsmoke on the radio. It's amazing to listen to it. It's special, you know. Fantastic. Thank you so much, everybody, for all of your hard work on this. And I think a huge round of applause for our author. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank fantastic. You. Yep. Fantastic. All right. Thank you, Larry, for bringing all these talented actors together. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Thank you, Larry. Great uh, pleasure. Uh, Take you. care, everybody. Stay uh, well. Be uh, well, everyone. Thank you. Thank you very much. Take care, everyone. Thank you, everyone. All Thank my you, fellow Larry. actors, my fellow Thesbians. Thesbians, yes. Thank you, Emily So. Yes. Lee, it's yes. been a long time since I've seen you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. 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 Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I love working with all of you. I love working with all of you. Have a good night, Larry. You Bye too. Bye, everybody. Bye now. Thanks so much for joining us for Once in Future Authors. If you've enjoyed the show, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. Reviews help other interested listeners to find the show, so your review could launch new books every day. Thanks again for joining us, and happy writing. <laughs>